I'm Dan Clark, and this is I Am Teacher. Welcome, everyone, to episode 9 of I Am Teacher. It's probably about negative 53 degrees Fahrenheit as I'm recording this in the middle of January here in St. Peter, Minnesota. Recording this on a cold day, snow day? I've discovered recently how difficult it is to carve out some time to actually do one of these podcasts, which might explain... Why there are very few teacher-centered podcasts, it's probably because they're busy doing something. I have been spending my free time with my family and also with the Knowledge Bowl team, which is basically the high school equivalent of Jeopardy, which students compete over high school content-related trivia, and also time with the Mock Trial team, which is a pretty incredible activity that I had just become more of a part of this past year. Basically what happens is students get a case, they get a bunch of materials, they get affidavits, they get evidence, and they have to come up with a plaintiff argument and a defense argument and then compete against other schools to try and either win the case for the plaintiff or win the case for the defense. It takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of courage to do, and just by being an assistant coach or a co-coach this year, I have learned so much about the law and also learned so much about what students are capable of. It's just another option for students who might be interested in pursuing a, a law career or maybe just people into theater, because it also has elements of that. Overall, just an amazing experience. And also the reason why there's not, you know, 25 episodes of I Am Teacher. There's just nine. This podcast does have some advertising support. We are supported by... Today my guest is another science teacher from here in St. Peter, Minnesota. It's high school science teacher Dave Borslin. I've known Dave ever since I started teaching here. He was hired just one year before I got here. So we started off relatively at the same time here in St. Peter. And he is a great conversationalist. I've had many conversations with him over the years, many of which I'm disappointed I never recorded because they were also very enlightening and interesting. But this time is the one time I recorded it, and our conversation doesn't really cover any of the normal questions I have on my guiding questions list. We just kind of started talking, and we let the conversation roll into whatever topic we fell into. Before I let you hear it, if you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can do so at my website, danielevanclark.wixsite.com forward slash I am teacher. 
we have had one donation so far of $50. So if we're using the same marker as before, that's that means I have about $19,950 left as far as a goal for money raised by this podcast. Oh, we're getting there, people. We're getting there. Also, if you'd like to keep up with when new episodes are released or check out my photography skills, you can follow this podcast on Instagram at imteacher.podcast. And that's all you need to hear from me. Here is my conversation with high school science teacher Dave Borslin. This is I Am Teacher. learned how to speak clearly and loudly. Really? I don't know. You haven't? Uh, I don't know. I like to think I have. <laughs> My, uh, uh, I had a buddy, I spoke at his wedding. He had a, at a, I did a reading and his dad was like, oh, why do you have this guy come up here? <laughs> he used to complain all the time when I was a kid. Quit your mumbling, Borslin. Come on. <laughs> and he picked, you, he picked the mumbler to go up and read. I did a fabulous job. Did you use a microphone? Yeah, I stood up in front of a whole church. Whoa. It's a Catholic service. So. Well, they're forgiving usually, right? Isn't that how it's supposed to work? Even if you screw up, you I should dropped know. the mic on it. It was pretty smooth. <clears throat> and then he said... No, no, I was smooth. Because you just, you just, you stop and think about it. I don't know. The reading? Yeah. Okay, like... What does this mean? What does it mean? What, like, how do you phrase it and pause and add a little bit of... Story flavor. Yeah, I mean, you you don't stand up there and read monotonously. <clears throat> you well, some people do in those churches. I mean, maybe that's I don't know. I just I feel like those stories were meant to be know, like they're stories. You got to tell it as a story. You ever you've seen the Blues Brothers before, right? Police. That was our warm-up soundtrack for soccer in high school. Oh my god, that's so cool. <laughs> but I'm thinking of James Brown, the Reverend Cleophas James. And how yeah. like he tells a story and it breaks into song. You know, that yeah. wasn't that's not the church I grew up in. <laughs> Mine was like a geriatric priest up there trying to you know, make a story like explain a story and make it relatable. But I don't know. It wasn't it just Hit or miss. Pretty hit or miss. I didn't go to church, so... Yeah, and I didn't listen too well, usually, when they were doing that stuff. They kicked me out. They kicked you out of the church? Smoking in the back, or what? I was told not to come back to Sunday school. Really? Too many scientific questions? I guess so. So, this Lord you speak of, Um, what is his uh, main element he is made up of? I've been a demander of evidence, I guess, for a long time. Like, explanation, understanding, like, I don't... I've never, I don't think I've ever just taken anything on faith. Unless it's someone I trust and believe in. Like if there's a, like a person that I, I respect their thoughts and how they come to their conclusions, then like my wife, if she tells me this is how it is, I'll usually be like, okay. <laughs> and if I think it sounds fishy, I'll check in. But like, I trust her. If she tells me this is what I should do, I'll do it. Yeah, I don't think I ever really, I mean, there were kids I grew up with, like when I was in, Whatever, every Wednesday religion class. Like, some of them just, you know, unquestionably just bought it and just, you know, like, oh, that's what they said. So, 
That's what it is. Yeah. But well, else, you know, I also have trust issues. Oh, well. You know, my dad left us when I was three, so I don't trust anyone. So is this Jesus guy, is he going to leave us or? Because I don't see him out there today. <laughs> Where'd he go? <laughs> you say he came back. That's funny. Where did he go after he was reborn? That's something you never hear about. Zombie Jesus. Where did Jesus go? So he was right resurrected, and then, and then poof, he was banished. Like where? You think once someone was resurrected, like that's when you get a real big following, and like people should have <laughs> like really kept track of like, whoa, this dude this came back alive. Like, what happened? They kind of just yeah leave that. <laughs> I guess I don't know the story well enough. I don't either. To see what happens to the physical he, part, does he just like fly away? Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe he wasn't. Physically resurrected. I don't know. I mean, the body was gone is all they ever said, isn't it? I don't know. I don't I don't remember the members being like, oh, and he walked out of the cave after we moved the big rock out of the way. So when you when you when you learn that as like a child or like, a, you know, you're in elementary, you believe the. Well, it's like it's any other story to like, like my like my daughter's in preschool at a Lutheran church. And she comes home and like sings songs and <laughs> tells us about Noah and stuff and. And it's just, for her, it's just another story. It's another fairy tale or anything else that we've read to her. It's Peppa Pig. It's just a different character. And I I don't know. It'd be interesting to know, like, well, how does that then translate to more specific actions, right? And we, we when his principal speaks, they do uh, Messy Mondays. And so when uh, the principal always sits down and has a little talk and he has some little token that he hands out to all the kids so they can look at and think about how, you know, candy corn at Halloween is like, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> it's got the three colors and the three parts to our Lord, and isn't that special? And and so he, he does a really nice job of finding ways to connect things that they're engaged with in their life and saying, oh, look, you can see our Lord here in this. Or, you know, he connected month, last month to, like, a, they got, like, this little football. And there's something about, I don't remember that story as well. And so maybe to... I don't know. Maybe it comes into there somehow. No, I, but I, what I'm trying to say is, like, when you're a kid, you take the literal, like, I don't know. They, I feel like when they taught it to me, they made it seem like this is exactly what happened, literally. Yeah. But then as I've, I don't know, I've gone away from religion. I didn't really, you know, for my teenage years and my 20s, I just didn't even bother. But then I've, I've kind of, I've seen some, or listened to some podcasts that have people on that, they talk about the psychological connection that those stories have. So, like, they just the deeper psychological lessons. Mm-hmm. Like, um, what's an example? So, they ba- the the one I heard was basically that the story of Jesus Christ is like the all like it's just another version of the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Is that you're supposed to? That's the best version you're supposed to aspire to be like. And so, like, that's why um, he, he's the central character of the story. And then there's also the idea of death and rebirth. And that means that, you know, whenever you change, a part of you is going to die, but then you're reborn as something new. Like, if, you, if, a, if an idea that you had in the past is all of a sudden confronted with new research or new scientific fact, like, that part of you has to die. And then you are reborn and you're not the same. Um, so it's just, it's not 
a literal comparison or like the idea that people have the, you know, the crucifix. It's everywhere. Okay. I mean, I was just like, oh yeah, that's the whole, it's Christianity cross. But the idea behind it, I guess, is that it's supposed to remind you that you're going to die someday because that's what it is. It's death. The cross means death. I thought it reminds us that he died for our to absolve us of our sins. Right, but I don't. that's not what I think. I think that, I mean, that's not the one that, that connects with me. The one that connects with me is that when you see it, it should remind you that your time is limited, pal. Make the most of it? Yeah, because it's, it's just supposed to remind you of death. That was, he hmm. died. He did not live forever. And so I've found that hmm. I can approach it or when somebody breaks it down like that to me, it's more relatable and connectable and useful to me. Um, I still, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I buy into that. I don't buy into the whole other stuff, you know. It's just kind of lessons that are psychologically applicable that appeals to me. Yeah. Well, I think that's the value, right? I think science and religion always get into these, we get thrown into separate categories and like told that we're in a fight with each other for eternity. And we've, you know, there's been actors on both sides who've made terrible allegations, and I mean, obviously people like Galileo suffered at the hands of the church for the science that he performed, but I don't think there's any... I don't think that that's the religion talking. I think that's the humanity trying to be the controlling force in any great entity, right? Like any big business, right? Big Brother and, and Google, like they want to control us. They want to own and know every little bit and have that power and power corrupts it does like it just does and and i think that was just the church trying to maintain like look we are the political and social order of this humanity and so we have to keep a really really tight grip on it and and you see it in right it happens all the time and 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 science is the same way we've got big thinkers on the science side who are like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disrupt this whole system. I'm going to turn everyone on their heads and mess with it all and be like, look, this is real. Real is observable. And, and maybe there's a better balance than being at one extreme or the other. But recognizing that, you know, we ask different questions. Uh, I'm reading, ooh, I'm reading uh, The Reckoners, <laughs> which is a series, um, which it, it, it plays right. So I don't understand the whole details. I just finished book one. And, and they, it's like the calamity they talk about, and they haven't really spelled out what the calamity was, except this red ball is in the sky now. And then people took on new powers. Some people did, and we call them epics. And they have like strengths, like bullets won't hurt them, but they have a weakness that causes them to be vulnerable. Like everyone has a vulnerability still, the Achilles heel. Um, and so they... Right? They, they take over. And so there's this one guy, the story revolves around this guy named Steelheart who um, was wounded once and this boy witnessed this damage to Steelheart. He got a little, a little cut on his side. It was the boy's father who did it and it was an accident because um, his boy's father was trying to defend Steelheart from this other epic who was going to try and sneak up behind him and kill him. And so the story is about this boy's efforts to avenge his father's death at Steelheart's hands. And so as it progresses, like this is a spoiler here, but it turns out that using those epic powers 
make you like somehow evil is what we learn towards the end of the first book. Um, so what is what's like the what's the what's the transferable lesson there? Like you, what's the power? Right, using the power. So possessing it doesn't corrupt you, but when you go to apply the power, it does for your own good. Um, and so again, another spoiler here. Um, there is the leader of the Reckoners. He is also an epic, but no one knows that. The Reckoners are the people trying to take down the They're epics. trying to kill all the, like, the, the superhero-ish people. They're supervillains, though, with superpowers. Right. And he's actually got superpowers. But he doesn't use them. Well, he does, but he gives them. He's a, they're called gifters. So he can give like, his energy shield to you in the form of like a glove, and then you can use that power for a while. And so if he gives his powers to other, he's fine, he's awesome. But once in a while in the book, you see him be forced into using his powers himself to even, even to go rescue one of his comrades. Um, and he, and you could see in the language in the book, he becomes very short, very angry, very violent, and, um, and dangerous. So like, what is the, what is, because I hear that, does that mean that I shouldn't, use my strength or what does that mean like i'm trying i'm supposed to not no i think you need to right you have to use it but you have to give your strengths to others if that makes sense and i don't know how that works exactly like i don't yeah i'm trying to think okay well it probably breaks down on an individual basis you know everyone's got a different strength to share so you know i think of uh there was a quote we had when we were backpacking in knolls and like you know being the strongest, right? Being the first one to be able to get up a hill, that's not what you use that strength for, right? Yeah, I could sling my 90-pound pack and psh, rally a hill and, like, sit up there for a half hour waiting for the slow pokes to get there. Um, and, I, and I wish I knew the words of the quote, but it, the idea is that you don't use your strength to be first. You use your strengths to help everyone else succeed. Does it, I think that's a, yeah. I like that. That's a really good lesson. Yeah. And I, so I, th- I think to me, that's, and I'm curious. So I just started book two last night. So I was like, oh, this it sounds is, like a really good book. This, I'm is, this is solid. Yeah. <laughs> I like, I'm, I'm into like superheroes, superpowers. Yeah. I'm thinking of Superman right now. There's a scene in the, one of the latest Superman movies where the human father of, of Clark Kent, okay. Kevin Costner, is like trapped in a truck mm-hmm. and there's a tornado coming. Like Superman's there and he can save him, mm-hmm. but his dad's like just shakes his head like, "Don't do it." And because there's people around, he doesn't want him to see. He doesn't want to bring harm onto his son. Like yeah. this freak that can you know he knew what would happen, so he just sacrificed himself. And Clark Kent had to watch his human father disappear into a tornado. And it's kind of I think it's the same lesson, right? Yeah. Maybe I don't know. Like don't. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit different. But you, like your powers aren't to make you stand out as the greatest. I just I think right. That's a, that's I think that's an ego right. thing. And and yeah, if, yeah, I think if we got back to like religion is saying the same thing. Like you don't use your beliefs and your strengths. You use it to right lift other people: the humble, the meek, the poor, the needy, the lepers. Like you, you support and you build their world around you. How does that message get so lost among all those people? 
Because, I mean, I'm thinking of so many examples. I mean, I just watched a video about, I don't know if it's called Davos. Is that a thing? And, like, all these oh, rich people. Switzerland. It just happened met. last week. Yeah, that's what, okay. I watched a clip from that. And they were talking about just, you know, the amount of billionaires that went to that conference on their private jets to hear Al Gore speak about, you know, change, affecting the climate or, you know, doing something about climate change. Yeah. And all these people have all, like, they put all their money, which could be very helpful to, to fix many of the problems, and they just, like, stash it away in these, like, far-off accounts that never get touched. Yeah. And the, undeni- like, some of those people probably are religious people, but I, they don't get that point. I don't understand it. I don't understand how you can't, I mean, let's say, I, I mean, I feel like if I came upon lots of wealth, I would, maybe based on what I've experienced so far, try to alleviate some people's hardships. You know, if, like if I could wipe out someone's student loan debt, yeah, like that would make me feel good to be able to do that. Yeah. But there's tons of people that could do that for many of their fellow citizens or people, not just student loan debt, just, you know, yeah. general, <laughs> like, teachers even there you know? was oh it was, a, it was a headline something like you know someone who's making 15 dollars an hour if they gave a 20 dollar bill once a month to charity they would donate they would have donated a higher percentage of their income this year than jeff bezos like it was a stat like that you know and it's it's the poorest who donate the most so when we you know you think about like your taxes you know it's it's a huge impact. Like a gas tax on someone who's very poor is a huge impact on their lives. But if you're wealthy, it really doesn't matter because it's a drop in the bucket when you have, you know, when you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars or if you're the extreme super rich, right, the millions of dollars a year, it's just like, oh, yeah, so I had to pay an extra 100 bucks in gas this year, like, Right. I spend that going to the bathroom every day. I make I made that much money every time I go pee. <laughs> yeah, and it's if you look at history, like the United States was most prosperous. Well, I mean, one of the most prosperous times was the fifties. You know what the no, the nominal tax rate was? For AOC tells me it was like seventy percent. Yeah, seventy percent, seventy percent. I don't even know what it is now, but it sure as heck is not seventy. It's like I want to say like twenty, thirty. Uh, I don't even know. I'm just guessing. Yeah, the highest bracket is I think 35 still. Although so it, it might have come down. How like when I when I teach history class, I try to teach like I try to teach learn from the mistakes, but also learn from the stuff that worked. And we don't like that worked. We used that money to build a interstate highway system. We used that money to fund school. Yeah, to fund yeah. education, and it just it those things worked. Yeah, but we didn't. We don't replicate them anymore. I don't understand well, why we, we don't. We could because I, I think there's one more piece to that prosperity in the '50s that um, I get frustrated, especially as Tom Brokaw becomes more and more of a foot and mouth, curmudgeonly old man. You know, the Greatest Generation. They had a lot of advantages going for them. We just bombed the crap out of the world. So Germany's economy was shot, their industry was shot, Japan's economy was shot, their industry was shot. Like there was no one 
Like, the rest of the developed world was beat up because Europe was destroyed. Right? There was no one who could handle the manufacturing and the production and the technology that come out. There was no one else available to take advantage of making money off of that. And we did because we were the only developed place who didn't get destroyed infrastructure-wise. And so that put us, you know, it just gave us a huge head start on all of that. And I don't want to take away from that generation, but I think that that also means that they didn't get it right. They just had zero, comp- like, what did, they had no competition from anyone. Right, but, I mean, they were able to fund domestic programs with oh, yeah. the money of the, some of their wealthiest citizens. And yeah. I don't know if there was a lot of pushback. I'm sure there was some. Yeah, but Maybe it was more, but I feel like... You're making money hand over fist. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll let that happen. Because they also didn't want, right? They also all still had fresh in their minds the depression and the challenges that right. people struggled through. And I think a lot of people were like, I don't ever want to see people hurting like that again. And I also think, on top of that, you've got the Soviets. <clears throat> and everyone was kind of united against them. So every, like, the, this entire country was one team. And yeah. they were another team. And we were like, we want everyone on our team to be, you know, doing well. Yeah. So we can beat them at yeah. this long game called the Cold War. Well, and show them the power of our democracy and power of this system of governing and how everyone can win with it. But I think that's been lost. Like, we don't have, I don't think we have an entire, I don't think we have a complete altogether team anymore. No. No, I would agree with that for sure. Yeah, I mean, how, can you bring, can you bring the team mentality back? I mean, you'd have to, like, I feel like there'd have to be some global conspiracy to manufacture the next Cold War just by these shadowy figures that would see that competition between two large superpowers would create community among them. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that what we're slowly moving towards again? I mean, we keep, we got... With the Russians? Yeah. I mean, Maybe. What, what was it in 1984? There's like the Eastern Front and the Western Front, right? Weren't there three warring factions in 1984? In the Soviet Union, or what do you mean? No, in the book, 1984. Oh, I don't know that book very well. I don't either. I remember reading it once, very quickly. I thought I always thought it was two, but I could I th- be totally I th- wrong. I feel like there were three different fronts that they were fighting on, and and I th- I feel like we're trying to set that up, but it's really one right because we're trying to pair up Russia and China in a lot of ways. We use the same language to talk about them. We accuse them of similar crimes, um, but it, yeah. well, I don't. I mean, I feel like a part of the population doesn't see them as a threat. Yeah, like well, as as news comes out about you know more, you know Russian involvement and tampering and Chinese hacking and all that. I don't. There's a portion of the population that just doesn't. I don't think they care. Well, I don't think they have time. Yeah, I can see that. Right. I mean, I think about right. What was life like in the 1950s, or at least that they tell us it was like? And I know it's it's a lie and it's a myth, but you had a working dad. You had a mom who stayed home. You, you know, you, you have this dream of this idyllic world, and I know that maybe is more of the suburb, and it, in other settings it was very different, and it's not everyone's reality because we saw that manifest in some of what, the race wars in the 60s, right? 
that was a product of people being left behind in settings. In, in those cases, a lot of those folks were left down behind intentionally. But I think when everyone feels like the war's over, the economy's moving, everyone has a chance for a job, I think it's a lot easier to be positive and celebrate and, and think of all of the things that became available post-World War II. Mm-hmm. All of the, te- the technology that came online, right? All the, 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 way we, the way we farmed changed more so in that decade than at any other point in human history since we first started cultivating food intentionally. And I think when you have that situation where, like, like bread is always available, eggs is always available, like, you know, the, the fears of the Depression and that stuff, just everything is great. Like, we survived the World War II. We dropped the atomic bomb. No one's ever going to fight again. And I think in those moments, it's like you still got your hands up in the victory and you never, you never see the pain in a victory. And I think it was easy for us to be supportive. And, and as we move into, right, we've watched in our lifetime, like the boom of the 90s. Everyone loved the 90s, right? And then we had to crash. <laughs> uh, and I think when we struggle, and something that we didn't acknowledge is that we've struggled now for almost, well, for all of the 2000s, right? People have had to work harder and harder for less and less return. And that's a human capital. And that really, I think that makes it hard for anyone then to pull their head out and say, okay, let's make healthy, good choices. Because they, they got to get their head, they got to get their nose back to that wheel and grind away some more. Yeah. I mean, even looking at teachers, I read an article this past year, 30% of all full-time teachers have at least one other part-time job. And I'm in that 30%. I spend my weekends stocking shelves for Pepsi Cola of Bancato. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there isn't a lot of time. And I know that it's not just teachers. It's people that have three jobs that, you know, yeah, when are they going to sit down and be able to develop a, a competent philosophy on Russia <laughs> China, you know? Yeah. Or even, yeah, have time to consume. Well, and it's not even consume now. It's you have to sift through media to consume quality media. Um, do you watch uh, The Good Place? I've, I, I started watching that last year. Like, I got, I've been, I've watched like five episodes. It's pretty funny. I just don't have time to sit yeah. down and watch it. All right. I don't know if I want to spoil it for you. I mean, go ahead. It's not, it won't bother me. Was it season three now, I think? It's good. It's just it's a smart show. Yeah. Uh, and they, I was watching last night with my wife, Ori, called it a night, <laughs> which was nice because we didn't have school today. Yeah. Uh, but they were talking about right the point system to get into the good place is rigged, and they're looking at the point systems, and it's like there's no way to make a good choice for people, and they have a judge. Who, who doesn't really understand? We have this point system; it works. And they're like, "Well, look, if you buy a tomato, that's a choice. But this is what is connected to the tomato that you're getting penalized for in our point system." It's like slave labor, or what? <laughs> yeah. Well, you got yeah, you got your your immigrant labor that's being underpaid, 
who's harvesting it, you've got the chemicals that are involved in the manufacturing and then the transport. And like, and so making a good healthy choice for your body, which is eating a fresh piece of produce, um, took points away from their point total for gaining access to the good place. <laughs> and, so, and so the judge, who's played by Maya Rudolph, she goes down to earth to try and experience earth because, you know, there are all these interdimensional beings. And... Um, <laughs> She comes back and she is flustered because it was impossible. It's like, she's like, there's not, there's no way to make, she's like, I don't have time to do anything. I couldn't figure anything out. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, isn't that the sad truth that it's, I mean, not to be pessimistic, but sometimes I just think it's, it's just a dumpster fire out there. It's just raging dumpster fire. That's impossible to put out. So, wouldn't this be a great day to help students think through that dumpster fire? Like, snow days are special, right? This is a treat. We have a day off of work, sort of, kind of. Like, and we weren't planning on it, and what do you do with that time, right? I spend my time throwing papers all over my room, trying to reorganize all the chaos in my head. Um, but what do the students do, right? We give them very intentional assignments so that they can learn and grow and build. But like, like this is a free moment and I feel like we should celebrate the unexpected moments in our lives. And, you know, like, it's a little cold out, so maybe sledding isn't the right thing to do today. But, um, you know, I always joke, like snow days were special when we were kids because you suddenly had eight hours that was given back to you, that no one else controlled, it's 100% your choice. And wouldn't it be special if we could have our students be reflective of what they've been doing? I don't know. No, that's, I, I, I'm all aboard on that. That sounds great. Just have them think about, I mean, I, I guess the challenge is a lot of them might not, f you know, find the value in it yet. Yeah. I don't know, but maybe if, if we were to instill that in them at a younger age, like maybe it would be a good time to think about where do you want to be? What do you want to do? Who do you want to be? What's a new skill you want to develop? Right. Right, like you have eight hours today. You want to play guitar? Do you want to learn to play piano? You've got an iPad. You can put a little piano keyboard on there. You can learn the music, right? Like there's, and you're not going to become a, a pianist in that time, but you, right, you can start exploring something new. And I think that's, that's so valuable to just kind of step back and be like, I want to try something today. Like, what, what do I want to, what if I always wanted to try that suddenly I have space to do that in, that I didn't think I had space before? I, th I think that's, in general, one of the biggest, pro I, biggest problems I have with education is that it's just, it's just too, um, what it's too it's too much emphasis on you know time in a seat or days in a class or hours in front of a teacher um, or standards number of standards covered um, because in the end I don't think that really matters um, because time is going to be lost whether I mean even if it's required in a classroom, like there's going to be time in a class where kids aren't doing things and that time is lost. But it counts towards the final end of, well, you got to have this many hours in your seat and then you're good to go and then you can move on to the next. And then you have this many hours and you got to do this, this many classes. Like all of that, I don't think, 
I don't think it's. I think it's too complex or more complex than it needs to be. Um, and maybe I'm too pie in the sky, but I think that I think a good snow day assignment would be like, you got eight hours. You have to document something new that you did today. Like that would be something that everybody in the entire school could do. And I mean, maybe I don't, if it's graded, I don't know, but I would take that challenge for sure. I mean, as a teacher, I would probably take that challenge. I would, you know, that maybe I would paint something or so like, maybe I would try to build something, you know, um, and maybe there's a list of things that kids could choose from. That was my original flex learning day when we came out with it a couple of years ago. It was like, learn something new and show me what, show me what you learned. Right. I just, we don't, right. I care. I care what students learn. I think there's, right. There's moral things that I hope they learn and that's based on who I think is a good human and how you behave and treat others. Uh, there's content that I think is important, right? Obviously a science teacher, I think we need to be fluent in science. We need to understand the scientific challenges that face us today. But at the very end of the day, the biggest thing I want for my students is their ability to think critically about something they observe, to, to see themselves as learners, to see themselves as people who can right, solve a question, a problem that they encounter. I want them to be able to solve it, having thought about the ramifications of their choices. And I, I yeah, I, I mean, I use science to try and teach that process, right? You use history to get them to reflect on choices that others have made. Um, <clears throat> and, and I, yeah, I think a snow day is a great chance to be like, look, just dazzle us. Do something cool. Like, you know, I have had so many great artists in class. Yeah. And, you know, their snow day assignment should be to visualize something for me in science that caught their attention. Like, how can you, you know, and you'd need support of someone like Paul Kennedy, who's an art teacher who thinks about this, or, you know, I'd love to hook them up with, uh, I've got a friend who is an artist. She works at Gustavus and she, like, her artwork is all a study of nature. So she looks at places and water and trees and thinks about how she can reinterpret them Right? I'd love to have them right, interact with someone like her about nature and their artwork because that's not what they're doing right now with their art. And what they're doing is beautiful, but I want that to be expanded. And wouldn't that be a great way to connect with those students rather than, well, look, here's a reading on ecology or, you know, like, it's where they're at. It's something that they're jazzed in. It's something that's going to be a part of their life forever. And now we can use that part of their life to engage with nature somehow. Yeah, that's, I mean, if I'm thinking back on the most memorable things from my education, it was, it is stuff that I, I created. And it's not even, you know, it's not some new invention I created, but it's things like a history day project, which is just, it was just, you know, a three paneled board that I put mm-hmm. some pictures on and descriptions of things on and explain to people. But that I can clearly remember every step of that process right now as I'm sitting here. You know, I can think of the the Rube Goldberg mousetrap I made, or the Rube Goldberg I made in science class where you had to 
you know, have simple machines, put out a candle. Yeah. I remember that clearly. I remember, you know, the video production class I had where we made this dating game video and I did, I played this like white homie G guy and it like those things clearly, you know, had enough, you know, meaningful, uh, what meaningful experiences to stick in my brain. And I don't, I don't know how much of those experiences we're creating all the time. Like, I hope that I'm creating those things, but, you know, I really think that's a, uh, you know, an important path or a, it's a worthwhile path to take. Yeah. Um, have you ever, I'm thinking about, have you ever seen a movie called Accepted before? Is that where the kid doesn't get into college and then he makes his own Yeah, he school? makes his own, like, fake yeah. college. <laughs> <And> yeah. <laughs> It's a it's a great like early mid two thousands movie. It came out when I was in college, like my freshman yeah. year of college. It's got like Jonah Hill and yeah. uh, some other you is know it, young comedian actors. Long? Yeah, Justin Long, and uh, you know at the end he gives like a impassioned plea about you know why can't we exist? Why can't you guys have your ivory towers and your rules and your structure, and we'll be over here and we we'll do what we want to do. Yeah. And why can't that be just as meaningful as you know the typical standard education? I mean, when I think about changes like this or making changes in general, um, if I'm looking at the system itself, I don't think, like I've come to this realization recently, I don't think the changes can be made from within the system. I think it has to be done from outside like you have to bust out is there any like scientific examples of that where someone's trying to <laughs> reform something or change an idea and no but like it's not happening so they break out and they do it on their own because i feel like there's got to be some historical precedents or scientific precedents for that right i mean i'm thinking of like so like martin luther and the reformation in world yeah. history he obviously saw that he couldn't fix it from within so he went off and did his own thing, and that worked. Like, mm -hmm. you mean look around southern Minnesota? There's plenty of Lutherans around. Yeah. Well, Any thoughts on that? On you know, busting out instead of doing it from within. I'm trying to think. I mean, science works within its systems, and I think you look at old science, right? Darwin recognized that his work didn't fit within the dogma of the world. And so he and other scientists did their work in isolation. And because of the way science works, you toil in isolation and you try to collect little bits and pieces. And then when you think you have a coherent story and great evidence to support it and rationale, then you start kind of giving little bits and pieces to people you know and trust and you've talked to and see if they can figure out ways to punch holes in it. And then as you start to grow more and more confident in this idea, however earth shattering it can be, once you have all that evidence in line and collected and organized, then you present it. And in science, at least, we are supposed to be open-minded and follow that evidence. And there's, uh, and there's still plenty of battles raging even today about you know, things like the dinosaurs or plate tectonics is one that we kind of settled on in the 60s. Like, it's a fairly recent thing. People are like, no way they could move. And it wasn't until we started figuring some other pieces out, like 
putting down that transatlantic cable suddenly made us map the ocean across the Atlantic, and we saw this giant fissure in the middle. We're like, huh, what's that? And they started looking at either side and looking, oh, those sides match up in age, newest in the middle, oldest to the outside. How do you get that? Is that somewhere else? So we keep asking more questions and building up more evidence, and then, um, and then it all comes together, and hopefully we, as a collective in science, can move forward. And there's been some debates that have really struggled to move forward because humans are involved and we have egos. <laughs> <laughs> so right. how, how do those things change? Just more funerals of older, you know, older fixed-minded people that used to believe in the old research that was that was changed by the new research? I mean, because those people yeah. probably don't change their mind, but the young people that are coming up probably read the new research and they say, well, that's the thing. Yeah. So is that how it happens? Yeah. I mean, part of it is you age out the, the loud voices and sometimes the loud voice is like, this is my baby. Like this was my theory from 30 years ago. And no way I'm letting some little upstart say it's wrong. And, and, right. and that's ego. And we have to right, keep ego out. And good science is done with just the facts and the evidence and the analysis and if you don't think that's great yet, then hey, right, build your own experiment. Like everything about science is testable and you can always write a question or you should always be able to have a question that you can disprove, right? If this is the way they think this works, let me poke a button right here and this should happen. If it doesn't, then what they understand is wrong. Right, so I, I, just, I just on the way over here heard an example of this that kind of changed my opinion on things. It was, it's, it's about a thing called Rat Park. Have you heard of this before? Rat Park. Yeah. No. So uh, this was a podcast. Um, I think the guy's name was Johan Hari or something like that. He wrote the book Chasing the Scream. And he was referencing this study that was talking. The book was about addiction and the war on drugs. And in this study of Rat Park. So he tested, or I don't think he tested it, but another scientist was testing the idea that... Um, or he was testing the experiment that when they put a rat inside of a cage with a, a cocaine water bottle and a regular water bottle, the rat would almost every time, I mean, every time it would OD on cocaine. Yeah. Okay. And this other scientist looked at that and said, well, I mean, is that a natural environment for a rat to be in? An yeah. empty cage by himself? Let's make rat park. So he made this really pleasant, you know, just picture rat some. Rat-utopia? Yeah. <laughs> Rat-topia. Um, and they had the same water bottles, the, the cocaine water bottle and the regular water bottle. And they found that when there was a healthy amount of social interaction between the mice and there was food was, the food needs were met and, you know, everything was, you know, at a normal um, homeostasis level, mm -hmm. they barely ever drank the cocaine water bottle. Yeah. Um, and so that experiment, like you said, like pokes the button and it should take that original idea and just blow it out of the scientific world and say like that obviously is not applicable but he was talking about how people who debate the idea of addiction to drugs often still cite that original rat experiment and don't even think about that rat park experiment that should obviously shift their mindset to think about well what, what are these people that are addicted what are their social interaction situations like? Well, and I, I think, right, psychology would support Rat Park 
you know, as we have been observing students for many years now, clearly our social interactions as humans have changed in the last 20 years. Um, you know, we talked earlier about right, nose to the grindstone, always working, always working, right? We're, we're looking for escapes. And I think as more and more people feel like they're struggling to make it in this world, there's fewer and fewer opportunities to escape. And so they're going to take the few chances that come up. And, and for kids, obviously, that would be technology. That's their, yeah. you know, that's their dopamine producer. That's oh, their escape. Yeah. And in this podcast, that's what they were making the argument for is that that's what, that's what drugs do. For sure. They offer an escape yeah. from the pain of the real life. And that's why people tend to use them. And that's why they are, they are addicted to them. It wasn't because... So this guy was trying to contradict or, I mean, trying to challenge the addiction idea of, or not the addiction, the disease idea of addiction and also the drug idea of addiction. Because he had the original thought that, you know, well, drugs are addictive because, you know, because of the drug. But as he did, you know, you know he said, you know, hours and hours of interviews and research, he said that that was totally wrong. Well, it's it's... Right, and that's where, like, science, we ask why, why, why. It's, you know, it's not the drug. It's the endorphin rush that the drug elicits in the body. And right, human interaction can give you that same thing, right? Giving, right? giving your wife a hug every morning is wonderful, and you feel good. Um, squeezing Mateo, right? Squeezing our kids in the morning and giving them a kiss when they run and just leap into your arms when you come home within a night. Like, that's... That human physical contact, interaction, and the feeling of I have love in my life, um, yeah, that's the endorphins we get. And if that's not a part of your daily life, you're going to, you need it. Like you really, you need those feelings of, and if you don't have them, you go to dark places, you know. Um, and that, that totally makes sense to me. And so I don't understand why, as a society, we don't really focus on those. You know, there's, I mean, I guess maybe it is because of the lack of time, but it seems pretty clear that that is what is going on with, you know, they were talking about the opioid crisis on that same topic, and it was due to a lack of meaning in people's lives and a lack of, you know, those those experiences with other people that was causing, Mm -hmm. you know, the you know, middle-aged white man to be hooked on opioids or the teenager addicted to the cell phone to kill themselves or to become depressed. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, I feel like it's, it's like that fact is out there. We know this, but we don't But we do much. There's no incentive, I guess, in the market to but it, fix it's a, it. It's also a product of how we, especially in the U.S. and in, like, Western cultures, attack problems you know i think of medicine and and like symptoms like what happens if you go in with back pain right they give you a painkiller well that right that just treats a symptom it doesn't get at the root of problems and i think as a society we really struggle to right keep digging right we have to understand like why does the back hurt there's a variety of reasons. It may or may not be muscular. It could totally all be in our head. It could be neurological. There could be a pinched nerve somewhere, but there's a lot of things that could be causing that pain. And 
to spend the time and the resources to drill down, ask the questions, do the tests that need to be tested to get the definitive, like, this is what's causing this pain. Um, as a society, we don't, we don't like to put that kind of time and thought into solutions. We want to just cover things up. If I can make the pain go away, then it's solved. And that's unfortunately not true. It just means the pain is gone. There's still, the problem is still there, right? I can have a big hole in my yard and I can throw a tarp over it and say, oh, the hole is gone, but it's <laughs> like, it's still there. And I think that we, as a society, are always looking for that quick, easy fix. Here's the pill, it'll go away, instead of having to really look inside and say, okay, what am I doing to contribute to my back pain as I slouch here in my chair, right? Like, we have to think about our role in in these challenges and how do we how do we sit up straight? How do we tackle it? And and and, and accept that at some point maybe there won't be an answer for us, but we have to search for understanding first instead of just solutions. And do you think? Does society get there eventually to that point? Because I'm looking at, you know, the current state of, you know, the, the world or the country. And I, I don't know, it's hard for me to see society coming to that conclusion or to that game-changing moment. Um, so my wife, she's a Gustavus. And so a great class that they teach there is um, a public discourse class where the students come in they have to identify a problem in a meaningful space in their lives. A lot of them do projects around their hometown. Um, but the hardest part, or, or I, don't, I shouldn't say it's the hardest part, but when I, when I talk to my wife about it, one of the big challenges for students is that they come in with a problem identified and a solution already at hand. Like, we don't have a ballet class in our, in our city. I'm going to make a ballet class. And... And, and so her first step with the students is always like, we got to step back. And we have to understand the challenge first. So, okay, this is a challenge you perceive. What do others in your community feel like? Are they, like I'm sure your friends agree with you because they're also dancers, but what it needs to be identified by the group as a problem that we all want to solve or we need a solution to. And I think we're really quick to, and I'm guilty of this all the time, like I'm a problem solver, like give me a problem, I'll fix it, I'll fix it. Like that's mm -hmm. part of why I love science, because I have a problem and I can figure it out, it's a puzzle. And, and we have to be careful to step back and, right, I wanna fix my kid's shoes or their jacket, and they're like, ah! And I gotta be like, Dave, slow down, man. Slow down, let them tell you what they need help with. Right, and that's really hard for me, and I think we, we all want to fix everyone else's problems. It's, it's also a way to not look at our own problems and deal with them. But I think it's really important that we, we, we've, we've got to step back and just ask, what is the problem? How does it look? Where does it come from? What are the parts to it? Why is this an important thing to solve? And once we have that information, we can start talking about what a solution would look like together. Yeah, I, I guess... That sounds awesome, and I wish that every student would have that experience. And I'm trying to think how you could get more people to approach things that way. Maybe it's, I feel like you have to have leaders, you know, that are visible and listened to that 
you know, really put that out there. Like I, I listen to a lot of podcasts that focus on that stuff. Like there's like Aubrey Marcus, he, st- he founded this on it company. It's, I mean, like the catchphrase is about total human optimization and it's all about, you know, doing work on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like there's not people like that in the mainstream, you know, what? I don't want to say media because that's just a stupid buzzword. But in the mainstream that are accessible by large amounts of people, they're out there. Yeah. But those aren't people that are given, you know, time on the traditional mediums. You know, they're out there on mediums like podcasts and YouTube. You know, I'm thinking of The Minimalists. Do you know about them? No. There's a documentary about them on Netflix. Um, It's these two guys. They have a podcast I listen to a lot now. And it's all about, you know, doing that work on yourself. And I just, I really hope that expands. But part of the pessimistic part of me says, <coughs> you know, part of the population just is never going to get it. And if, like, when you bring up these things to, you know, your coworkers, you're often looked at as, you know, a weirdo. Yeah. But we've, I don't know, I think about, like, think about our model for society, right? We've had right, top-down authoritarian rule through the church and through our democracy. Like, we have a say, but then we put someone in charge and say, you do your thing, and we'll vote you out in four years if we're not happy with what you chose to do. And, and I think we have business structures where the CEO is boss and he gets to do what he wants. Um, and we don't have a lot of examples of the employee engagement, right? I mean, we work in a school. Like, how much, how much control do we as teachers have over the overall school plan and mission? Right. And, but, and so that's a great point because if you look at movements in the world or great changes that occur, I don't know. I don't think they ha- I don't think the best ones happen from the top down. They no. almost always happen. From a from the bottom up. Well, they, I don't think they ever happen from the top down because they're not right. They're too disconnected with what's happening on the ground that they're never going to be frustrated. Like if you're a CEO and making you know got a couple billion in the bank, like you don't recognize the challenges faced the common person, and so you're not going to try and fight on their behalf because you're not even interacting with them. And so I don't think that as a society we have, I mean, what institutions do we have where there's kind of this group mentality around problem solving and improving? And I think, right, for us, that's the goal of BLT. But I think back to my student teaching at an alternative school, and we met every Wednesday. We, we, everyone left, kids, students all left at 2 o'clock, and we had a staff meeting for two hours where we talked about, we just put names on a board for good or for bad. We wanted to talk about this student for this reason. And then everyone else had a chance to chime in and tell us what they learned. And then we would decide as a group, because it was small, we only had like 120 students and there's like 20 of us. As a group, we could decide every direction that this school went, how did we deal with this student on this situation, um, and so that, for me, was a healthier approach to supporting students and learning and modeling that sort of 
the people doing the work should be the people, a lot of the deciding about how that work should get done. Right. And so how does that happen? Do people have to, that are in those positions of those, you know, kind of different approaches and they have to break out and go affect other communities? Is that, I mean, is that how that works with change or, or does someone just have to hear this and be like, oh, that's a good idea. That's Let's it. do that. That's it. No, there you have it. Your, your audience has it. <laughs> Solution to the world's problems. No, I think we need to keep building capacity to work cooperatively on these challenges. Um, so my wife, she's amazing, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they had a couple conversations this fall around, right, we have a, a large growing Somali population within our district. And as teachers, we recognize that we're not as successful as we'd like to be with those students. And we have our ideas of what the problems are. And so she got a grant to host a conversation between Somali parents and our teachers around the challenges that face immigrant students in our school district. And so her and her students worked on uh, a day-long dialogue for those people to engage in and they record all the information and then they stepped away and they took all the information and synthesized it and organized it that they heard because they had three separate groups going and then they all came back uh, about a month later and her students had put up the work that those people had done that maybe they didn't know they had done and then they picked challenges that they identified as being like these are our priorities like our like do now versus we'll get to this in two years kind of thing mm -hmm. and then they started talking about how do we address some of these challenges um, and I, I think the school district has listened right so we're gonna have um, a full-time Somali liaison in our district at some point in the future who is going to help teachers and families communicate with each other because right as we look through our infinite campus, we see students with flags that say, oh, parent needs interpreter, parent needs interpreter. Like, we don't have that resource readily available, and, and we're going to now build that capacity. They've, there's talk of a newcomer program where, like, when someone joins our district, we walk them through, like, this is the world we exist in, this is how this building operates, this is how, like, things that we aren't doing for people, especially people who are coming from a very different educational system, right? And that's awesome. I I think that's great. But it ha But it the thing that I want to point out is why, like, or I want to ask is why did that have to happen outside of the school district itself? You know, like I that's I'm appreciative of that. But why wasn't there somebody within this community that already was trying to do that? Was is it because of a lack of time? Like that was because they were able to dedicate their time to that. I think it's also expertise, right? I mean, my wife, she goes to conferences. Like she thinks about how do we build conversation? How do we get engagement from groups? How do we make a safe space, right? I think of, like, how many, well, you probably don't get this as much in high school. With like, I, I can tell you that over half of the parents that I talk to at conferences say, I was also bad at school, or I was bad at science. Um, 
And so there's like a stigma, even to coming into a place like the high school, there's a stigma for some parents and community members who are like, that was not a good place for me. Like that was, an, that was not a good time in my life. I don't want to do anything that might draw that back to me. And, and, and so we have to work past those things. And so the school reaching out to those individuals and saying, hey, we want to talk to you about your time with us 10 years ago, like that might not work. And so it, it, I think it takes an independent, outside, neutral party, right? She has no, she has no stake in the game. Like it, at some level, in the cynical level, like this is a grant and she's just trying something out. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we have kids in the district, so we want to see this grow, this dialogue continue. And we want to see a, you know, we, I would love to see a point where the school could convene these meetings on their own, but I don't think they have the, like, they don't have the expertise to host something like this. Um, and I think it, it takes maybe an outside person for a while to just help everyone see, like, this is what it could be. No, yeah, that, I, that totally makes sense, the way you put it there. Because, the, I mean, the school would probably be a little, yeah, in, maybe intimidating to some if they reached out. or You know, they wouldn't get the honest opinion of people. Yeah. I mean, Because they're and, afraid of, you know. You and I had pretty decent experiences in high school, probably. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, I did fine. Life was good, you know. And I know that's not, my experience in high school is very different from a lot of my students. And I, I try to understand, but it's, it's difficult. So you have, I think I'm, the takeaway here is I'm, you have hope for positive change in the future to happen within the system. I mean, it needs, it needs help from the outside, right? Schools are these giant monoliths. And to be honest, right, we have a lot of hands tied. We can't be as creative and dynamic as we'd like to because we're hamstrung by state laws and federal laws. And, you know, that's one of the power of uh, charter schools. They're given the flexibility. I don't think that's the solution because they have other constraints and we still need some accountability. But I think we need to, right, we... Right, we give Medicare, like they talk about Medicare block grants so states can innovate, right? And Massachusetts went to their single payer system and they thought it was the bee's knees. And so ACA was tried to be built off of that model. Um, and I think there needs to be a way for us to try out different ways of doing this with a very clear, like, these are our goals, this is how we think we can get there. This is this different model we want to try. Here's why we think this model is going to work. And then we have to, right, take the risk. I don't know. No, I... I, Robbie Robbie and I are rolling the dice this year on this modeling biology. And it's awkward and difficult. and, And we're not always sure it's making sense. And the students definitely aren't sure it always makes sense. But we're convinced in the end, right, we've improved those skills of communication, the skills of critical thinking and challenging evidence. And I don't know that we're going to get all the answers on things like mitosis or cell parts or the equation for photosynthesis, which is super important. But I'm optimistic that our students um, can think better than they had in previous iterations of this class. And for me, I come back to, you know, you know, underrepresented Dr. Seuss book, 
Hooray for Diffendu for Day. Just never one, heard of it. He never finished it. Um, he had these ideas, and it was it was finished later. And I think uh, Jack Pretlutsky did the artwork for it. Um, but the idea was we, we teach kids to think and to be critical thinkers and to question and to challenge and debate and have conversations about everything. And then they can be able to figure stuff out. Like I'm not brilliant, but I can pick apart a multiple choice test by recognizing verb tenses don't match up. You know, like a poorly made test, you can get most of those out of the way right away. And if we can teach students to be good thinkers, then they can figure anything else out they need. If they can think and learn on their own, like then they can solve what other problems they encounter. But if they can only tell you the sequence of mitosis, then they can only tell you the sequence of mitosis. I don't know, if you've never seen the world in color, then you don't understand what that means. But once you've, I don't know, the mind stretched can never go back to its old place. So I think if you, yeah, it, it, and, that's, and that's what we're kind of shifting towards, right? We talk about those 21st century teaching skill, you know, skills. And that's all those are is figuring out how to solve problems yourself. And I'm, and I'm thinking of this because I'm a, a child, but I'm thinking of this in terms of like wrestling promotions right now. So... When it comes to, like, I understand the need for public education. I'm a public school teacher. I get it. Mm-hmm. But I think that right now, I mean, public education is the WWE in the, you know, mid-2000s. After their main competitor, WCW, went out of business. Yeah. What happens when your competitor goes out of business and you are just left to yourself? What happens to your product? It gets stale. And that's exactly what happened to them. They, they got stale. Yeah. And it's taken quite a bit of time, but I would let, like, right now there are some other promotions making the rise to the top. And it's going to force competition between that behemoth of WWE and other promotions. And I think public education needs other promotions to go up against because I think the product is stale. And I think there are options and ideas out there that need to be given, you know, the light shined on. And then once those ideas happen, the, you know, the main promotion, the, the public education system can take those ideas. Yeah. And I think that is where we should be going. And I think that it should be encouraged for people to start these, you know, indie promotions in education. Yeah. Well, I think you see it, right? I mean, that's that's how I got into modeling. I think it's this. I think it's the answer, at least in the science world, of getting at the critical thinking and getting away from the puking back what I told you yesterday kind of thing. Um, and I was able to convince Robbie to join me on that journey, which is awesome. And I think, I think it's out there. I think the challenge is, as an educator, finding it. Right? You got to keep digging and looking and never give up and never accept that what you're doing is good enough, which is hard because you start to beat yourself up too then because you're always like, I got to do better. I got to do better. Um, but accepting that, and I think Topol says it nicely, like you, you did your best today and that's, that's what you can do. 
the best you can with the, what you have, with the time you have available, right? Is that, yes, is that your yeah. quote? Teddy Roosevelt, do what you can where you are with what you have. Yeah, and I think for districts, for schools to help out is hire the smartest people you can and give them a challenge to solve, a problem to solve, but also give them space and time to solve that problem, like meaningful space and time. Don't give them a problem and and then like work them to the bone, right? You gotta, you've gotta carve out space and say, no, this time is, this is for that. Uh, and you look at like tech companies who, right, all these stories, I don't know how much they give, but 10% of their time or like half day of Friday is dedicated to their own pet projects. Like you need that space to process and think and mull over things. Like this is why am I here today? I didn't come here to do your podcast. What? I know. I was already here. <laughs> right? Like this snow day it was my, like that special time. It carved out a chunk of time that, I could do anything I want with. And because I'm a professional educator, I chose to take that time to look at my curriculum and try and map it and try and flesh out more bits and pieces that I want to be better organized or flow smoother or very much more deliberate about the questions that we're asking. Um, and that is like the special treat of a snow day for me is you. And, and as a district, as an educator, we need to have we need to have those spaces set aside, uh, and we need to right, defend them very hard. Because if you don't unleash the the creativity and the passion of your educators and and provide them space for it, I think that's where you burn people out. Because now. Right. My other option is to do the same thing I'm doing today, but do it away from my family and take away time from them. It forces me to choose. Do I try and make my craft better or do I try and raise my children? And I think we need to make it available so that you can still do both. I don't know. What was I... I was talking with my wife again. <laughs> we talk a lot. That's good. We hang out together uh, every night. Just Sounds about. healthy. Um, but thinking about how do you, like if you want something to change or work to happen, like a half day, like take a half a day off and say, this is our mission for these three hours. And we kind of do that, but we always throw in all this other random stuff. And we're very prescribed about what the product has to look like and what, and I think... Maybe even, like, who's on your team, you know? Yeah. Because we're, we're often just kind of divided up in our departments often. But maybe you don't... Like, when do you and I get to build our little tiny school where we have one math, one history, one science right. teacher, one English teacher, and we have our own little collection of 120 students that get the bask in the glory of our interconnected interdisciplinary work? Like, wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, I mean, I think... If you're going to have that time, you should allow some, I mean, flexibility in the choice of who you're going to bounce ideas off of. Like, if you're going to force someone to be with, you know, if you're going to force a idea creator with an idea killer, yeah, it's just not going to go anywhere. Yeah. But if you have an idea creator and a idea nurturer, 
and encourager, yeah. you might get something out of that. But if you have the other option, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, any last pieces of parting advice for students or teachers or, you know, the future people who will listen to this long after we've passed from the scene? Isn't that crazy to think that this will be in existence long after we're gone? That's right. Your children will listen to this probably. It's possible. Grandchildren. Well, you know, I'm the same age as Voyager, so that golden Ooh. record and I are are still out there. <laughs> Blind is the Night by <laughs> Willie Johnson is on that. Wait, no, that's not what it's called. Something by Blind Willie Johnson is on that record. Some American blues. Yeah. Huh. But what? Any, anything. I mean, oh. if not, I guess we've, I mean, you've had plenty of great pieces of advice for people. I don't know. I think... I think you have to remember that there's like everyone has something interesting to tell you. I don't know, and it's something I struggle with, like slowing down and hearing uh, from people and students, and um, I don't know. I used to think it was follow your bliss, but I don't think that's quite right anymore. But I think you know you, you and you know I used to work in Florida, and it was yeah I never had to work a day in my life because I love what I do and. I don't think that's true either because I do like teaching, but it is hard work. And I think it's important to remember that it, if you love something, then you work hard for it. And I think that's what, what teaching is. And I think sometimes we, we lose connection with the idea that we have to work hard in life. I don't know. You've always worked hard, so you... I don't think so. I get lazy sometimes. My teenage years were <laughs> filled with non-hard work. But I think I think we've confused working hard with not getting ahead. And I think in all of your podcasts, right, a common theme is that they're always working on something, right? They're trying to improve themselves or understand more. And, right, scientists are always toiling and figuring out another little piece and I think it's important for our students and our next generation and even ours to recognize that struggle is real and it should be there because without struggle, there is no growth. Um, and you can't move forward if you, if you aren't challenged. And sometimes you have to create that challenge yourself. Uh, but there's plenty of challenge out there. You just have to be willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with it. The one thing I'm thinking about, of course, is the, you know, the pressure on the coal creates the diamond. It's cliched, but the thing about cliches is that there is a truth buried in there, and it's very real. Yeah. And sometimes when you use those phrases over and over again, it just gets lost, but it doesn't make it any less true. No. And I think you were right about the whole idea of struggle, and that sometimes you have to create your own struggle. Yeah. If you maybe live a, a cushy, or have a cushy existence, shake yourself up a bit, Put some obstacles in front of yourself. Yeah. And you might you might just grow. Yeah, I hope so. We got a lot of growing to do. Well, Dave, thanks for coming in. Or th thanks for letting me steal your snow day time. Thank you. It's, it's been fun. Oh, I love talking to you. Dude. We'll have part two sometime soon. Oh, yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Am Teacher. Have you enjoyed my conversation with Dave Borslin? One last time, if you'd like to donate because you found some piece of advice worth 
paying for, you can do so at danielevanclark.wixsite.com forward slash imteacher. And you can follow me on Instagram at imteacher.podcast. I know I mentioned the Minimalists podcast as something that I have been listening to lately that I have gotten a lot from. Some other ones I'm listening to that are pretty great. Matt Diavella, who directed the movie or the documentary The Minimalists, or I think it's called Minimalism. I don't, I'm not sure. He's got a podcast as well. It's called The Ground Up Show. That is also one that I have been frequenting. And it's filled with some great pearls of wisdom. And I think this is something I'll do each podcast is kind of leave you with some things that I have been finding worth listening to or worth watching recently. It's something I have learned from other podcasters and something that I like. So hopefully you will like those things as well. Thanks for listening once again. Be sure to keep your eyes peeled for new episodes of I Am Teacher. The winter activities are wrapping up soon, meaning that there will be more time available in the schedule to record conversations with my coworkers. So we'll see you next time here on I Am Teacher.